What's up? I'm Ben Hale, and this is the Easy Living Yards podcast. Creating a beautiful yard should be easy. Let's jump in and create the dream yard you deserve so you can enjoy more time doing what you love. Welcome to episode 101 of the Easy Living Yards podcast. Guys, before we jump in today to today's topic, which is what is permaculture and why should we care? Before we jump into that, just a quick, quick housekeeping thing. I just want to give you guys a heads up uh, that over the month of January, maybe February as well, uh, shows might be coming out a little bit slower than normal. I'm kind of taking things a little slower. I uh, kind of did that in December as well. Did some recap shows, uh, did some throwback shows. And throughout January and February, life has gotten crazy busy for myself uh, with the household. And kind of as I talk about here on the show, you know, life is more important than our yard work, right? So in that same thread, uh, you know, I have to make some priorities right now just for the sake of my own energy. So I hope you guys don't mind, but the shows will be coming out a little bit less uh, frequently over the next, uh, you know, couple weeks or so. So I just wanted to give you a heads up so it's not taking you by surprise if you're wondering is something wrong with the show or anything. And likewise with the family, nothing's wrong. Basically, I just took on <laughs> took on more than I could chew with some house projects uh, and, and that sort of thing. Work is kind of crazy as well. So life is kind of crazy. Uh, we're still not, still not sleeping through the night with our little guys. Um, We've had some some sicknesses go through the family uh, that's been keeping some of the kiddos up as well as our young guy. Um, he's still not sleeping through the night. So we're quite tired on the top of that, too. Um, we decided to tackle a bathroom remodel, our math, master bathroom desperately needed some remodeling. And so we ripped it down basically to the studs um, to redo it. And it's, of course, quite a bit of work to do so. Uh, and we've of course, like with any project, we've run to a couple speed bumps, that sort of thing. Nothing we can't tackle, but it is taking much longer than expected. Much of my free time as well. So, um, you know, I just have to make some priority calls here. So unfortunately, guys, the show is going to slow down for a little bit. But luckily, though, this is a little bit of a quieter season. And that's not to say that this show is not important to me. This show is very important to me. I hope it is important to you as well. And so uh, we'll be getting back up to speed very soon. But I wanted to just let you know that, um, you know, I will be getting shows out maybe every other week for, for the next two weeks or, or a few weeks or so. Um, and uh, yeah, wanted to give you a heads up there. So I'm super excited, though, to talk about today's topic, which is what is permaculture and why should we care? So if you guys don't know, I haven't really talked about it a whole lot on the show, but I am very passionate about this thing called permaculture. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you already have some conceptions of it. It's actually kind of a polarizing word for some people who've heard it. Um, I'll be flat honest. I love permaculture. So what is permaculture? Well, a lot of people have different definitions of it. A lot of people who haven't really dove deep into the subject also have these sometimes misconceptions about it too. Essentially what permaculture is, I'll I'll get into the definition in a minute, but as a whole, this is kind of this, the synthesis of it is this design concept, this design process or design science is what some people call it. Um, It's a way of perceiving things specifically with the focus of 
food production is kind of where it originated. But it's a, a mindset, a design process that really encompasses everything. And so it's a way to look at things to minimize inputs and maximize yield uh, in a way that takes care of the world around us, takes care of ourselves too. That, so it's really been applied now to um, not only agriculture, uh, homesteading, but also community design, um, community resilience, business design. That's actually where or a lot of what I've designed my business around is this concept of permaculture as well. So I've tried to design my business in a way that applies permaculture concepts to my business. So kind of funky there, right? So let's get into what it is. And really, this is going to be kind of a two-part series. Today, I'm going to talk to you mostly about defining this concept. What is permaculture, right? And why why should you even care? Why should you keep this episode going? And why shouldn't you just turn it off? So I really want to get to the synthesis of what it is and how it can help us. And then in next episode, I'll go more deeply into really why it matters to you and how you can apply it to your life and to your landscape more specifically. And, and how this permaculture concept can really change your life in a way of how you approach things and how you approach your yard, your life, that sort of thing. Sounds kind of lofty, so I want to make it more granular in next episode. This episode, we will be a little bit in the lofty definition stuff, but of course, I don't want to make it boring at the same time. So I'm going to try and make it as interesting as possible, provide you some examples, that sort of thing. And um, let's just dive right in. So this concept of permaculture, just a really, really short history, is, is a there's two founders of the permaculture movement. Uh, this dude named Bill Mollison and this dude named David Holmgren. They're two Australian guys. They worked together at a university. Um, and and basically they started to come across all these, the local indigenous, you know, aborigine populations, some of the tactics they use to address the climate that they lived in, um, to address, you know, resilience and that sort of thing. And all these other resilient agricultural design concepts and processes and tools that were being used uh, across various geographies across the world, they started to pull that together into this this more synthesized um, concept, which they called permaculture. It's kind of an abbreviation of two, two different terms, permanent culture and permanent agriculture. So the first application, of course, was this permanent agriculture thing. So a more resilient agriculture design, but quickly became realized that it was more broadly applied. If you have, if you want to have permanent agriculture systems, you have to have permanent cultural systems as well. And so it came to be more applied to this just general overview of how to live basically in a more resilient way that addresses some of the major, you know, questions of our, our day. This was back in the 1970s and it's certainly true today in the, the 2020s, right? And of, you know, shortening uh, availability of resources or, or restricted availability of resources, whether it be water, oil, uh, food, uh, all sorts of things, minerals, right? And so how do we address those those massive questions on a global scale, but also apply it to be more resilient at a community and personal scale as well? So that's kind of the history of it. So they came up with these this kind of overlaying concepts um, and basically just published it to the world and and it became this kind of growing movement across the world. So now there's kernels of permaculture practice communities across the world in almost pretty much every geography with 
actual practical applicable systems growing food or resilience in pretty much any climate you can imagine so it's pretty cool stuff um and so so it's this really like that's kind of why it's hard to define actually is because it's this all-encompassing process or concept with a m- bunch of different tools and applications depending on your geography your climate conditions and that sort of thing or what you're using it for whether it's agriculture on a large scale or homesteading or community design to develop a resilient community or business design to develop a resilient business all of those things take different tools and tactics but they have the same general mindset if that makes sense okay so in my own words well, let's let's talk about the founder's words first, I guess. All right. <laughs> so, so Bill Mollison, one of the main, you know, the two founders, um, he calls uh, permaculture as such. Permaculture is a philosophy of working with rather than against nature, of protracted and thoughtful observation rather than protracted and thoughtless labor and of looking at plants and animals in all their functions, rather than treating any area as a single product system. Okay, that's a mouthful, so I'm just going to go through it again, and then we'll kind of tease apart what, what he, in my own thoughts, what he's trying to say. Permaculture is a philosophy of working with, rather than against nature, of protracted and thoughtful observation, rather than protracted and thoughtless labor and looking at plants and animals in all their functions rather than treating any area as a single product system. So let's take, for example, uh, maybe instead of using my own words, I'll just use an example. So let's take an example of the conventional lawn landscape, since that's what we talk about a lot on the show here, right, is, is our landscapes, right? So if we think about our yard, the grassy lawn, So protracted and thoughtless labor is basically this lawn system, right? We have, it's really an artificial system, usually compacted soil with low fertility, which grass does not like. We want to grow grass there, right? So we we grow this grass, we treat it with chemicals to make it um, like with weed and feed, right? So we want to get rid of the crabgrass, we want to get rid of the dandelions and the clover. We, I mean, most people, I I extract myself from this group of we. Um, So that's generally the thought, right, is is to have just your one species of, let's say, bluegrass or Bermuda grass or whatever. So you cover it with weed and feed. You get rid of the plants you don't want. You put crabgrass preventer on it, right? And then also you treat it for grubs, right? You don't want grubs eating those roots. So basically you have this really synthetic system that's highly has lots of inputs and then of course you have to irrigate it right to keep it keep it watered when it's dry and then you have to fertilize it because there's low fertility in the soil and then you have to mow it right because you just put fertilizer on it so it's growing faster and you just watered it so it's growing faster right but it's not brown at least right so um so that's a protracted and thoughtless labor system right and so permaculture says okay what are the issues what are the the high input pieces of this and how can it maybe be different right And so, likewise, looking at plants and animals in all their functions rather than treating any area as a single product system. So if you think about it, the lawn is a very specific single product system. You're looking at one species of grass or maybe a blend of just a couple species of grass, and you just want that. You don't look at it as a holistic process. You look at those grubs as a pest, right, as opposed to maybe they're eating... Again, the grubs are generally eating the the um, 
the rotting or injured roots of the grass plants that are struggling because they're in a low fertility system. So maybe if you improve the fertility of the system, it would help, you know, reduce your inputs of fertilizers and um, grub preventer stuff because then the grubs wouldn't be there as in high numbers because the grass is healthier, if that all makes sense. And then you wouldn't have moles coming to eat the grubs, for example. And so seeing it as a holistic system and, and you know, accepting that some of those those grubs are going to be there, accepting that every once in a while you might have a couple moles and just, you know, embracing that as a, as a more holistic system that has... Um, is more self-maintaining could be one solution. I'm not saying that's the only solution. So that's kind of an example of like how you maybe look at things from a permaculture lens as opposed to this the the somewhat um, sometimes simplified lens that we use today. So again, in more of my own words, permaculture really is like this design perspective inspired by nature using purposeful interventions to create resilient systems that require minimal long-term inputs for maximum sufficiency and yield. So I'm going to read that one again too. I wrote these down if it's not obvious. (laughs) But this is kind of my own personal definition of permaculture in a way that is helpful to me and I feel is helpful to more and more easily digestible to more people too. So permaculture is a design perspective inspired by nature using purposeful interventions to create resilient systems that require minimal long-term inputs for maximum sufficiency and yield. And you notice that this definition is also somewhat vague, so it can be applied to not only agriculture, but uh, landscaping as well, right? Or or something not even having to do anything with plants, but more looking at a more holistic design for any sort of system you're looking at. So again, when it comes specifically to agriculture and landscaping, permaculture systems are designed to work along with the land, with ecosystems and with soil, as opposed to against it. So it's utilizing the natural processes and embracing the natural processes and understanding how those natural systems can work for you rather than against you or feeling like you're working against them. So again, it's more of a mindset and a design perspective, right? So... When it comes to permaculture, the the founders and some of the main proponents of permaculture, some of the, some of the early people that kind of have become leaders in this movement of this concept, they what they did is they set about a framework. So that's what I'm going to get into today. So this is going to be a little bit heady, a little bit, um, you know, I hate to use the L word, but a little bit lecture focused, I guess. I don't mean that in a preachy way or anything, but more, I want to get this information to you as quickly as possible so you can kind of chew it up and digest it and really kind of absorb some of it to see what's uh, meaningful to you. So there's, there's a couple framework pieces. First, there's the prime directive. Then there's the ethics of permaculture. And then there's the principles of permaculture. So when it comes to the prime directive, this is like I've talked about a landscape vision in uh, other episodes, right? Coming up with a landscape vision for your landscape helps basically encompass everything you do on your landscape and helps guide your your work and your interventions and your design throughout the whole time you're in your landscape. So likewise, the prime directive of permaculture is the vision for permaculture. Then there's the ethics, which are the, the main core things that you should always be following. And then the principles are applied here and there in, in most ways throughout 
the design process, but you're not always utilizing every single one at every given moment. And these principles, too, are defined somewhat differently depending upon which expert in permaculture you talk to. So, so there's a little variation here as it's applied across regions and, and, you know, there's different people with slightly different opinions. So, um, let's just dive in and, and really, I want you guys to share your feedback about this show as well. So this is a concept that's super important to me. I know I said, I just jump right in. I just realized that, right? So (laughs) I already distracted myself again. Um, this is a concept that is super important to me. So that's why I'm sharing this today. I have waited a hundred episodes before sharing this with you guys. I didn't want this show to be super jazzy about permaculture all the time, especially because it's a term that somewhat is polarizing to some people and other people have never heard of this concept, right? So now it's time. All right. So 101 is the episode that we're talking about permaculture finally. And, and so as, as background as well, uh, I have a permaculture design certification. So this is basically there. There's this thing you could do in permaculture um, where each community, each you know group or community, trains people in this permaculture concept to utilize designs and to actually go and create designs for people. So it's the 72 hour certification course. You know, it's to some people that seems like a crazy amount. To some people that seems like not much. Well, either way, basically it's this this. Um, program that does last through 72 hours of teaching to really get you well-versed in all the ethics, the, um, the principles, the prime directive and, and various applied concepts. And then to actually go in and create your own design and, and, um, critique it and study it from a permaculture perspective. So it's really cool stuff. Um, and I'll likely go ahead and do uh, future, PDC permaculture design courses as well, because it's just each time you go through this process, you learn something new and you're in a different stage of your life. And it's, it's really informative. So very time consuming, but very informative. And I also have several books that talk about this stuff. So I'm a book nerd. I've read tons and tons of books, stacks of books on this, um, this, uh, (laughs) permaculture, uh, concept. And so I want to share those at the end of the show with you guys too today. Um, so Stay tuned for that. Let's get into the nitty-gritty details now. So the prime directive of permaculture is as follows. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. So that's from Bill Mollison in his first permaculture publication called Permaculture One. Um, This is so, I mean, I I think the first time I read the prime directive in permaculture, I was hook, line, and sinker jumping right in. (laughs) Two analogies there. I'm going to go with it. Um, To me, the the fact that it's an ethically based design concept, it speaks volumes to me. And so I was super excited when I read this. It still means so much to me that permaculture is based based on ethics because i think too much in our lives we forget about whether or not something is ethically sound and appropriate and correct and so when the prime directive says the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children it really it just I mean, it's, it's so encompassing to me. You know, we are responsible for ourselves. We're responsible for our future as well. And how much better would the world be if everybody thought that? That's just awesome, guys. All right. <laughs> Said enough on that. So the ethics of permaculture, there's three ethics. 
this is really cool too. I think it, you know, we get more and more as we go on. There's one prime directive, there's three ethics, and there's anywhere from, I think like 12 to 14 to, to even more principles, uh, debate based on who's talking about it. Um, and so the three ethics of permaculture are care of earth, care of people and return of surplus. And so the, the third ethic sometimes is spoken differently, but essentially the the first two ethics really speak for themselves, right? Care of earth. So whatever you do, right, using the prime directive as well, if the only ethical decision is to take care of our own existence and that of our children, care of earth really says, okay, we got to make sure we're taking care of the world around us, the earth under our feet, the earth as a whole, right? And so that helps steer us into what we're doing should help benefit the earth, the world around us, the biodiversity that lives on that earth, right? Care of people, also very important for community resilience, right? But the really interesting thing is that it's placed second, right? So that's really interesting because if we don't care for the earth, we can't care for ourselves in the long run. And that's the problem we're in right now is really we are caring for people first at the 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 damage to the health of the earth. And that's why we hear so much about, you know, changes in, in, uh, climate changes in, um, species loss, um, and so on. You know, we could really dive into that, but, but really uh, to me, what it boils down to is we've placed the care of people first as the primary species, but in reality, we're doing it at the detriment to our future generations, right? So we first need to care for the earth. It's the only earth we have, right? It's it's the source of all the resources we use um, to promote society. And so if we do it in a more sound, ethical, and caring way, we can care for the people on this earth as well. So that's really what it means to me. That's my own interpretation, of course. So the third one, not quite as self-explanatory. Return of surplus is how I've phrased it. And there's various other ways different people have phrased it. So I'm going off of what um, there's a, a teacher in permaculture um, who recently passed away. His name is Toby Hemingway. And he wrote a wonderful book uh, called Gaia's Garden that really distills permaculture um, principles and tactics and um, the, the whole concept into a way that can be applied to suburban landscapes, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and of course, the same stuff can be applied on larger scale or smaller scale. Whether you have a balcony or a you know quarter acre, half an acre, twenty acres, you can still apply permaculture concepts to your outdoor world. Okay, and so the third ethic, return of surplus, has always also been called re- redistribution of surplus or redistribution of resources or return of resources to, or, or um, uh, the, I, I forget all the phrasings, but, but anyway, really what it's talking about is in a really good design system and a really productive system, you have a surplus, you have more than you need. And so taking care of that extra surplus in a way that gives back to the other ethics, care of earth and care of people, is really what the third, no matter how it's phrased, that's what the third ethic is about. So taking that surplus and instead of, you know, being greedy with it, or instead of wasting it, uh, using it in a way that benefits either the earth or the people around you. That's what it means to me, at least. So again, the overall as a whole, these ethics serve to maintain system integrity, whatever system we're talking about that we've designed, building resilience, and also building connectedness. That's really important too. Building community, connectedness, community between people, 
community between uh, landscapes, community between species and plants. All of those things are tied in here. So that's the ethics. We've got the prime directives. We, we, or the prime directive, we got the ethics. Let's talk about the principles of permaculture. So again, I'm, I'm taking from the principles of permaculture as defined by Toby Hemingway, who wrote Gaia's Garden. And I'll have a link to this book in the show notes. Um, I think you can actually go to easylivingyards.com slash Gaia's Garden, G-A-I-A-S Garden. And I think it'll take you right to, um, right to a link to the book. So that's kind of cool too. But I'll have a link in the show notes as well. So the principles of permaculture, there are 14 of these. So I'll try and not get too um, verbose on any of them just for the sake of time. Um, But as you guys can tell, I'm super passionate about this. Um, (laughs) And he's also broken these down into three groups. So we have functional design principles. We have living and energy system principles. And we also have attitude-based principles. So each of these, again, kind of like I said earlier, you're not always, when you're, you're designing a system or you're looking at a system from a permaculture perspective, you're not always applying every single principle at the same exact time. There's various parts where some of these principles are, are kind of more uh, overarching themes than others. And so really, this is like kind of like your toolbox of, of ways to think. So it's like, okay, here's 14 different ways you could think or approach this process. Now pick the ones that are most applicable to the thing you're looking at right now. So that's kind of the way to think about principles. So the functional design principles, the first is observe. So too often we get caught up in, <laughs> okay, I'll take myself in a separate self-deprecating way. For example, I love <laughs> slash hate when uh, I go to the store and I see some plants that I really enjoy on clearance. I've talked about this before. Still a problem. So I can't help myself when there's a good deal on good plants. So if there are plants I love that I've really kind of wanted in my landscape, more often than not, I end up picking these plants up on clearance and bringing them home. Now, of course, I haven't really thought through, like, where am I going to put these plants? Where can it best serve me and my landscape? What's the real purpose for these plants? Uh, So on and so forth. Blah, 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 right? (laughs) But Yet I end up with these plants on our front porch or in our driveway or, you know, off to the side yard where there's some, you know, they can kind of get some water, some runoff. When it rains, there's a certain area that fills up with water a little bit. And I, so I just leave plants over there, you know, it kind of takes care of themselves, right? Well, of course, I haven't fully observed my my system as a whole, my landscape, as to where these plants may even fit if they fit at all in my landscape, right? So observation very important before making decisions on on uh, what you will do connect is the second principle connect means really to think about how each single element in a system connects with a different element so for example we talked about lawns earlier right well in a healthy ecosystem, you can still have a lawn, right? But think about how it connects with the greater system overall. And really, a lot of times with, with permaculture-type systems, sometimes it takes a while after you establish stuff. You know, you put the right elements in the right place, and you put everything together, but it just doesn't seem to really, you know, the, to, to work right right away. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of time for things to start clicking, right? But when it does, there's all these beautiful connections that start to happen. And so if you think about those connections initially, you can help help jumpstart that system uh, to, to get really moving faster. And so, for example, I talked about 
the grass blades with adding fertility. So you have maybe some compost that you put over the top of your lawn as a top dressing here and there every once in a while. Slowly build the fertility of your landscape and suddenly you have fewer grub problems, right? You have greener grass, right? So your grass is happier, right? You start mulching when you mow instead of taking the clippings away. And that self-feeds the lawn, right? And so um, so suddenly, yeah, you have fewer grub problems. And then the grubs that you do have, maybe you do have moles show up, right? Maybe you're not happy about that. But what the moles do is they aerate your soil. So they keep it aerated so it's not getting compacted. So you have your occasional mole issues here and there. But overall, it serves to help the lawn in the long run. And, you know, maybe this is not the greatest example because I get it. A lot of people hate moles because they're kind of a pain, Right. I get it. But this is just an example about the connections that can be made even in a very simple system. So the third principle is catch and store energy and materials. Perfect example of this is water. We're coming up, especially in certain regions, on more and more scarce water resources, right? So if we think about the American Southwest and the American West, a lot of times there's restrictions on when you can irrigate your lawn. Lawns are very water hungry and they shed water off of them very quickly, right? So you have a lot of runoff of really that water has so much um, so much environmental impact built into it. It's usually um, moved in water channels and pumped across hundreds of miles. That takes a lot of energy to move that water. And then when it's used, it's very clean, right? So it's sterilized or sanitized water, right? And, And then it's used to water your lawn. And a lot of it ends up running off or evaporating off. And then some of it goes in the ground to feed your grass, right? And so there's a lot of energy that's built in it. So maybe catching and storing energy in a different way, building up the fertility of your soil so it can absorb water and hold it in place longer, building up resilient rain systems to catch rain water, right? And to use it in your landscape over a longer period of time to build rain gardens that capture and store rainwater as well, instead of running off your property. So water is a perfect example of catching and storing energy and materials. Same can be said about sunlight and, and leaf litter um, and so on and so forth, right? So utilizing those materials instead of seeing them as waste. The fourth principle of permaculture is each element performs multiple functions. So each thing in your landscape, think about what the, what the um, intent of it is, really, and can it be used for more than one purpose? So, for example, uh, like ornamental grasses, right? Say you want a certain ornamental grass. Well, if you look at it as maybe you can also provide habitat with that grass instead of just being beautiful, which is one function, right? You want beauty, but it could also be something that provides habitat. So if you choose a native grass over maybe one that is uh, exotic and doesn't provide as natural habitat, there's not as many insects that like it, right? So instead, looking at these multiple functions that can be built into one thing. Number five, each function is supported by multiple elements. So this is more broadly uh Let's go back to water, right? So if you have water in your landscape, you could have your rainwater tank, right? That you're catching rainwater from your downspout. And so you have rainwater to irrigate some of your houseplants or your your potted plants around your landscape. Or, um, you know, you use it as a, um, a trickle irrigation system, right? But then you also have your city water as a backup if you need it, right? Or when you run out of your rainwater. So that's uh, each function is supported by multiple elements. 
Number six, make the least change for the greatest effect. I love this one, right? This is the lazy man's <laughs> way of approaching things, but there's truth to it, right? So, so instead of using a ton of energy and effort uh, to to do things, sometimes it's worth investing time, thought, and also work to to do it the right way that reduces the long term. Um, effort required uh, in in that system or in that piece, that element you're talking about. So again, make the least change for the greatest effect. Number seven, this is our last functional design principle. Use small scale intensive systems. So this basically means focus your effort on a small space, get that thing working right before you think more broadly and expansively. Okay, so it's amazing the amount of productivity or the amount of of yield you can get out of a small space. So this is easiest to think about when we're talking about food production, right? If we're thinking about a garden, so make a a small scale garden, right? Get a big win with that small piece, then think about expanding instead of starting big and and really not being able to focus your efforts on it. I certainly made this mistake with even after I was permaculture trained. uh, with, you know, thinking, oh, I'm going to make this massive vegetable garden. Well, then it turned out I, I made this massive space, you know, boosted the fertility of the space. And then, uh, we had kids who was working on the house, uh, starting a business, all these things. And certainly I did not have the time to invest in that massive space. And I had basically a lot of things I planted there that ended up just being neglected and I didn't get a huge yield. So it's better to focus on a small thing and to, um, to really, um, get a win with that small space, that small scale intensive system first. Okay, so let's move on. Living in energy system principles. So principle number eight, it goes, is optimize edge. Now you might be thinking, what what is this one really about? Well, the most productive part of pretty much any ecosystem is the edge. Think about the the edge between a forest and a meadow. It's like thick, it's dense, it's full of plants. You can't even see through it. So you're like, if you're going from a meadow into the woods, you're like fighting through these tangles of all these shrubs and thorns and vines, right? And then you go in maybe 20 feet or so and suddenly it opens up, right? That's because the edge is very productive. There's increased sunlight access there, right? And so that makes it super productive and competitive. Likewise, think of the edge of a natural pond ecosystem, so in a natural pond ecosystem, usually you can't even see the edge, right? There's plants growing over the edge of it. There's algae and water lilies right at the edge. Everything's tangled up in there. There's fish jumping around, getting the flies that are dropping off the trees because it's the most productive part of the ecosystem. Likewise, so optimizing the edge in your space, whatever you're talking about, utilizes that space as well. And so it's basically taking advantage of the fact that edges are productive and utilizing that. Likewise, if you want to increase access to a space, you make the edge more wavy, right? So you increase the surface area of the edge and it makes it, you have greater access, greater diversity along your edge as well. Okay, enough said about that. Nine, collaborate with succession. Now, this is really talking about plant systems. But you could be you could apply this concept to change in general as well. But let's stick to specifically to plants now. So if you think about any given ecosystem that's not bare bare desert, um, 
most ecosystems have a successional process. So if the land is disturbed, what happens? Well, first you have bare land. You have erosion. You have soil that's you know leaching off when it rains, that sort of thing. Then you have these colonizing plants. They're these rough, tough plants, right? They start breaking into the place and growing, and they anchor soil. They, they harvest nutrients, and then they usually die, right? And then you have your later succession plants. So you might succeed into a meadow, for example. Well, soon enough, that place, if you have enough rainfall, will succeed from meadow into scrubland or shrubland and eventually to a forest, right? So that's your succession. So collaborating with this knowledge, you can build your landscapes to acknowledge that you will have succession. And if you try and hold back succession, like in the typical American lawn, you will have issues, so instead, embracing succession, especially in your gardens, you can't make a, you know, a forest lawn, right? I get it. But realizing that succession happens and to embrace it and to make your garden beds more productive is, is really what this is about. Number 10, use biological and renewable resources. So this taps into sustainability, sustainable systems, resilient systems, right? So use things that um, provide resources in a way that's renewable and also biologically-based systems as well. So thinking about, like, I talk a lot about compost, right? Compost is a biologically rich system that really helps kickstart and build soil, as opposed to using synthetic fertilizers, which are available for a very short period of time in high concentrations and are lost off the landscape after that, and and then poison um, our greater ecosystems as well. So for that's a, just one example of using biological and renewable resources. Okay, so let's jump into attitudes. So we got four principles left. So we talked about functional design principles, living and energy system principles, and now let's talk about attitude principles. So number 11, turn problems into solutions. This is kind of like the perplexing phrase of permaculture, that the problem is the solution. And really, this is kind of like an Eastern way of thinking in a way, right, of saying that when you have a problem, it's an indication that something is not working properly. And so thinking about the cause of that problem, and one, is it really a problem? And two, what's causing it on a deeper level really helps you figure out the solution um, to come up with a better design. Number 12, get a yield. (laughs) This, you know, kind of, you would think it maybe it it goes without saying, but that's the most important thing, right? Whatever your, your intent is with your space, if you want beauty, get beauty. If you want food, get food, right? That's very important to have a productive system, right? So make sure whatever yield you want, you're focusing on getting those yields. Of course, not at the expense of, of the ethics or the prime directive, right? But that's you really your focus of your system is to get a yield. Number 13, the biggest limit to abundance is creativity. I really love this one because, you know, as we grow... For some reason, we lose that creative edge to us. Thinking creatively is really the limitation to figuring out what we can do. So sometimes some of the coolest permaculture systems are these systems that are built on tiny, tiny spaces. And you think about, like, how can these people actually get that level of productivity from such a tiny space or such a difficult space? Well, it goes back to this thing. They're, these, these people that have these properties, they're, they're dealing with the system they have. Instead of saying, well, I can't do this because I, I, you know, my, my space is too small or, oh, I can't do this because I live in the middle of desert with, with four inches of rain a year. Well, instead they say, 
I have four inches of rain of year. How can I do this? Or I only have, you know, a tenth of an acre. How can I do this? How can I get the most productivity? So the greatest or the biggest limit to abundance is creativity. And so just thinking creatively of instead of saying, I can't, how can I, right? And spinning that around, it starts getting your brain thinking about new ways to approach systems. All right, the last principle, mistakes are tools for learning. This is a great one. (laughs) I use this one a lot. (laughs) But instead of thinking a mistake as a failure, think of it as, I mean, it could be a failure, right? You didn't get a yield, right? Or something like that, right? Or, oh, this tree I put here is now growing in front of my window, right? It's a mistake, right? It could be a failure in a way. But instead, look at it as an opportunity to learn and to, you know, improve. And that's really what mistakes are there for. So, all right, guys, those are the principles of permaculture as um, shared by Toby Hemingway. Again, credit to Toby and his book, Gaia's Garden, that really um, kind of uh, talk about all this stuff. So next show, I'm going to be talking about how we can actually take all this lofty, crazy stuff, right, and actually apply it to our landscapes. So really, what could we do with our yards based on all these permaculture definitions, right? What can it really mean for us? I think it can mean awesome uh, amount of, <laughs> I don't know how I phrase that. I think it can mean awesome, right? <laughs> I think this can be awesome for us if we really apply this in a way that's meaningful to us and we can actually take away uh, from this, you know, lofty concept in a way. And really it wasn't meant to be just this lofty, heady stuff. It's meant to be practically applied on a massive scale across the world to make our world, our lives a better better place and better lives, right? So, um, <laughs> all right, before I speak so so much more eloquently today, I'm going to wrap up the show there. So as far as resources for today, first, if you guys have any questions about permaculture or just anything in general having to do with your landscapes, hey, we could talk about life too, right? Shoot the breeze, whatever. Go on over to easylivingyards.com slash ask and, and just you know, shoot me a question. I'm happy to chat with you guys. I love working with you guys on just, you know, fixing the challenges you're dealing with right now or the questions you have right now so we can address them quickly and and really help you make a positive change in your life and your landscape. So go on over to easylivingyards.com slash ask to ask me a question. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. You can go over to easylivingyards.com slash episode 101 to check out the links for today's show. So what I've got today are three different books, uh, or two different books and a a blog post that I wrote. So um, the blog post is a post I wrote some years ago, and it's how permaculture design could save California. So we hear all about these water problems that California is having. So I basically... uh, you know, I got tired of reading about it and I decided to write about it. So I wrote a big long article on this. It goes pretty in depth on, on what are the problems we're having in California and then also what are some of the solutions we can address. So if you're interested in that, go on over, click on that link in the show notes, How Permaculture Design Could Save California. I talked about Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway a couple of times. So I've got a link to that book in the show notes as well. It's an amazing book, guys. Really check it out. Um, it's It's, you know... If you really take some of this stuff to heart, it can change your life. That's how impactful this stuff is. Likewise, uh, my friend, um, my my friend Amy Strauss, um, a fellow Cincinnati native, uh, wrote the Suburban Micro Farm: Modern Solutions for Busy People. 
This is a book based on permaculture's uh, principles as well. Um, so Amy's big into permaculture, and she created a she also has a blog called 10thacrefarm.com. So go on over, check out her blog. You know, I'll throw a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, but her book is also awesome. Uh, she signed a copy for me, which I love. Um, and, uh, yeah, the suburban microfarm basically goes into more of a food production perspective on a very small scale. Um, but, you know, again, these books can be applied not only to food production, but to landscaping as well. So check out those two books. They're awesome books to get started in permaculture. Go check out that blog post I wrote. Go check out Amy's website as well. She has a ton of awesome tips, especially if you're more interested in food production. She has an awesome website with tons of tips about uh, permaculture solutions for growing food um, and resilience. All right, guys, that's it. I love permaculture. I hope you do too now. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you live with passion and make tomorrow better than today.